There are no pressing announcements. Uh, however, two of your church leaders will be gone next week on Monday. We'll be driving up, having a grand old time of a 12-hour drive or 11-hour drive uh, to Volga, South Dakota, on the other side of the state. So keep us in your prayers. Keep that meeting in your prayers. And all the other travelers as well. We have the call to worship, where we are honored, <clears throat> privileged to be in God's presence by His grace and mercy alone. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. Bow hearts and heads to silent preparation for worship. Let us rise and sing Psalm 130a, 130a.
indeed, God above, you have promised deliverance and salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, and have fulfilled that promise and are continuing to fulfill that promise, Lord, in our lives. In the great day of Christ's return, Lord, we long for that day. We are grateful and thankful, God Almighty, for the many blessings that we have, the spiritual blessings as we sit in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we ask, God, that we continue to have joy in our hearts for this reality in our souls. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have Psalm 65, which is in the insert, insert inside the bulletin, Psalm 65. We'll read it responsively. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. Iniquities prevail against me. As for your transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. You who are confidence, the confidence of all the earth and of the far off seas. You who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. You visit the earth and water it, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water, you provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You crown the year with your goodness, and your path drip, paths drip with abundance. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. And thus we read here in Psalm 65 reasons why we praise and honor our God for the wonderful providence and the blessings he's given us in our lives. Let us pray. Indeed, God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our glorious triune God, we come as your people. We come as humbled servants 
in your kingdom. Thankful for the goodness and the mercy and the long-suffering that we have through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the giving of the Holy Spirit to empower and wake us up, Lord, through regeneration of our hearts and to sustain our lives, to preserve us unto that great day in which Christ shall return, God Almighty. For protecting and watching over us through your providence, by the power of your Spirit, Lord, helping us grow into the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for these things. We praise you, God, even as we struggle and admit our sins, violations and transgressions of your word in various kinds and stripes and ways, Lord, that we struggle with, things that even catch us off guard, God Almighty. In our weakness, we cry out to you for mercy and ask God for continued strength and encouragement of the reality and the fact that you are faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness, that, God, you have the gospel promises given to us in your word and that we can cling to those in spite of our sins as we repent of them again, always living a life of repentance, Lord, and renewal and the hope of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask in particular, God, as you call us in your word to bring our petitions before you, not just on the Lord's Day, but throughout the week as need arises and as best we can in an orderly fashion. comes to mind here, Lord, as Christian education, the understanding of your word, applying of that word in our lives, God. We ask in particular for our homes that have children or have children to be, that you would and protect them, that you would help the children hear your word and to learn and memorize it, God Almighty, and to understand your law and their need of a Savior and the glories of Jesus Christ and the gospel, Lord, how he died for his people on the cross and suffered this punishment for us in our stead. And so, God, may that education always be in the house and for the grandparents to teach their grandchildren, Lord, as best they can. And certainly, God, we pray that we would use the helps to that end, such as the catechism and confession, Lord, as good summaries, point back to the Word of God and give us in succinct fashion much wealth and riches from the Word of God. Help us to that end, Lord, to instruct our kids in these things as well. Always, Lord, reminding them to go back to the Word, to the Bible, to your truth that you have given us. And so, God, we pray for our churches and Sunday school classes to the extent that we are able to have them, and certainly to the preaching of your word, to instruct the people in righteousness, in your law and in your gospel, uh, to warn them, to exhort them, to encourage them, to guide them, we pray. And we ask God for the school situation of our families and our children, Lord, that they would have godly schools that are there to assist and not undermine the call of Christian education and the Christian life to learn your Bible, to learn its history, to learn of the saints of old, to, again, understand and be instructed in the doctrines of your Bible, Lord, and not to be ashamed of those doctrines. And so, God, we help, we pray in particular for those who have a hard time finding a good Christian school, uh, that have to homeschool, and it's become hard upon them, Lord, that they would persevere and to know that they are doing a good work for the children, God, in whatever situation they find themselves in. As best they can, God, by your strength and mercy, and the churches may come along and help them, encourage them, and maybe assist in that education, instruction of their children. And Lord, that this Christian education, of course, would not uh, lose sight of the need to learn to read and write, to learn basic math skills, to be useful members of society, of their community, of their church, and of their family. And so, Lord, may the children not fall into the trap of what we 
ourselves grew up with, Lord, which is to be disdainful towards education, uh, to think little of it, Lord. Uh, we know it's hard. We've been there ourselves, Lord. And some classes are more interesting than others, and others are more boring. And yet may they persevere to learn what they can so they can be useful and be prepared for an uncertain future. We pray, God, for our nation. We ask and implore your spirit to bring about to the mystery of your providence godly laws. We have a number of good godly laws. Murder is still illegal, at least most murder is. And so, God, we ask that these laws would be sustained and maintained for the good of our neighbor and especially for the good of your church, and that we would have godly leaders, at least leaders that would enact some godliness, some good laws and rules in accordance to what is written on their hearts and in nature, God, as we know that's there, that they know these things even without the Bible. And uh, many good societies historically have enacted many such laws, even if inconsistently, Lord, murder and stealing and lying, or such, some such laws that are common across all these nations, Lord. And we pray that these would not be lost in our society, and that you would somehow guide them to maintain such good laws, even if they do it out of spite, or for whatever reason, Lord. And certainly pray for their salvation, and ask God that they would have access to the Word, to your Bible, to the Gospel, and to good ministers or godly Christians, Lord, that can give them the truth and witness uh, to the glories of your Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, that you have given us. And so we pray also for continued protection, bodily and economically, for ourselves and our family, Lord, and this nation of ours and our state, God, uh, for proper care from our leaders, care in the best sense of the word, Lord. We think of our state that we've been here for such a long time, God, that has changed so drastically drastically in so many bad ways, unfortunately, and that we would also have good laws here, again, in spite of godless leaders, Lord, to have godly laws, to have good employment and good jobs and a better economy so that the young couples with their children can raise them up near their family, Lord, to maintain that continuity and that influence, that godly influence that we are called to do the best we can our God. And so we pray that our leaders would allow this some way, somehow, and the rich and the elite and whoever else has influence in Colorado. We pray for our local community and our neighborhoods, Lord, for safety and protection. We think of our friends, Lord, uh, out on the east side and some of the danger he's encountered, God, that you'd be with him and help him. And all of us, God, as best we can to understand our situation, give us wisdom to persevere and traverse these changing world that we find ourselves in in society, economically and legally and many other ways, Lord. Help us, we pray, not to be discouraged, but rather to persevere, to do what we can, to know that duty is ours and the results are in your hands, Lord Almighty, the hands of a loving and graceful, gracious Father who from eternity past deigned to put his mercy upon us through Christ Jesus our Lord and guides all things for our good. We pray for your glorious name's sake that your name may be magnified in our lives. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise Him, all creatures there below. Him above ye, heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We praise your name, God Almighty, throughout the week. And especially on this day that you've given us in your providence, Lord, and blessed us that we were able to do these things to honor your name. May these tithes and offerings, God, be multiplied for the work of the church. Amen. While we are standing, let us sing hymn 277-277.
Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of the Apostles' Creed, which is a green insert inside the hymnal. Let us read the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive him, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out to the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let us pray. With these words, God, by Mark, we are shown in strong relief the glorious truth that your Son forgives sins, and that we, therefore, should not be fearful of coming before him and asking for forgiveness, God Almighty, but rather to be encouraged and, Lord, to believe and trust that he is willing and able, and he does indeed forgive us of all unrighteousness. In your name we pray. Amen. As we read through Mark's summary of the life and work of Jesus the Messiah, we see him moving from the rise of John the Baptizer in the opening verses as the forerunner of Christ to Jesus' public baptism in the beginning of his ministry. Then we read a little later in chapter 1, of Christ's great power in the healing and his drive to preach the kingdom of God. And he had two things that he would do in his ministry, to heal and to preach, but especially to teach and instruct them in the call of repentance and trust in him. People came from far and wide to discover a Messiah who teaches and heals, but also a Messiah willing to heal and to teach 
He's not doing it reluctantly. Now we find in Mark's presentation of the gospel of Christ, not only that he is willing and able to heal, but also to forgive the greatest healing of all, the healing of our soul through forgiveness. The first point we have, Jesus' home base, where he comes back to Capernaum again. A reminder that Jesus' family ended up there later in life, and that this is where his ministry is, around his hometown. It's a place north of Galilee, a place that an economy based upon fishing and agriculture, some industry, especially tools made from basalt stones and of glass vessels that they have dug up, and trade. This particular side was rich in fishing, and thus we see some of the apostles were there and called by Jesus as they were fishing, and fishermen. The coins and the vessels that we've uncovered by archaeologists suggest that the village was commercially linked to the northern regions of Upper Galilee, uh, Syria, Phoenicia, and Cyprus. They had trade routes and the like. But it was more or less a working town. The archaeologist, the book continues, estimates the population of the town to have been between 1,000 and 1,500. It's just like, what? Is that even a town today? The average, with an average living standard of an ancient village at that time, local uh, volcanic basalt stones in their natural state were used to build walls and pavements. That's where the material came from. The houses had a singular door opening onto the public street, just there you are. And consisted of several roofed rooms clustered around a large open courtyard that served as the focal point where daily activities such as cooking and craft work took place. Houses of this kind were probably shared by two or more kindred families governed by a patriarchal structure. So here it looks like he went back to Peter's mother-in-law's house. and He was in the house. He came back and they heard he was there. And again, he comes back to his abode. Back to his own people. Back to Capernaum, where his heart is. Uh, as a man, of course, and as God, his heart is with everyone. And as a man, his heart is limited insofar as he can only be in so many places and focus on so many people at once. And he wants to focus on his own hometown. That is not wrong. And in fact, it's laudable in light of the fifth commandment. To preach and to instruct and to teach God's uh, people and to instruct and preach to people who are unsaved, but those who are near to you, that you grew up with, and close to your family, one way or the other. Unfortunately, today, it seems like only the glorious kind of evangelism to random strangers halfway across the world is glamorized and wonderful. It's not wrong, of course, but it's actually, in fact, I would argue, more commendable to go to those near you as best you can, as long as you can, as we know. And I'll remind you again that Capernaum eventually rejected Jesus, and he utters a woe upon them, as we'll read a little bit later, because they would not honor a prophet who came out of the midst of them. And so that's Jesus and him coming back to where he had grown up in verse 1. His popularity, second point, verses 2 through 5, immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. The house is just full of the locals. Yeah, it's only 1,500 people, but you try to get 1,000 people or even 500 people into these small homes. Word of mouth spread quickly back then. They didn't have the Internet, but they had the grapevine. And uh, it can move rather quickly. Even today, it can move pretty quickly. 
Again, it's mostly working class and probably, therefore, people who would have a greater desire to unburden themselves of the difficulties of this life, those who are more desperate. But not uniquely, of course. There would be rich people like the scribes, as we read here. And anyone else who had sick loved ones they wanted healed, as we see in this incident here. Everyone came within the town. And he was there, and he was there for them, not just to heal only, that is certainly part of his ministry, and I talked about that last week. He isn't always willing to heal. But when he is, it will happen. But to teach and preach especially. And he preached the word to them. The end of verse 2. And it's interesting that he didn't waste a moment and he taught them the word. Not just a word. Anything that came along and nice little stories. But the word of God in particular, I would argue, he spoke the good news of his kingdom as we read in chapter 1, verse 15, just a few verses earlier. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus' ministry was there to bring the kingdom of God and to teach that truth that he is the fulfillment of all these prophecies and that they ought to repent. That's one of his main themes. And although, again, in popular literature, even in Christian circles, unfortunately, it is Christ presented as always giving happy, good news. He calls sinners to repentance. That's the beginning of his ministry we read in chapter 1. And it has to be that way, because that's where deliverance and salvation comes from, at least from our perspective, that we must repent, we must believe, we must eschew and hate and flee from our sins. And this is part of what he's teaching here. He doesn't emphasize and explain exactly, Mark doesn't, uh, but if you happen to know a little Greek, you see that he is emphasizing this point. He preached the word. He's reminding us verses late earlier. Chapter divisions are artificial. Don't forget that. <clears throat> and so I think that's what he's teaching. And the only thing that he would be teaching is his truth, that is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The paralytic, verses 2 through 3, then, they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. That'd be three through four. Four loving friends who took their friend, somebody who apparently couldn't walk on his own, paralytic is someone who can't use his limbs. One, all of them, we don't know, but somebody obviously who needed help. And his friends were there to help him. And of course, we are there to talk to our friends and bring them to Jesus Christ if we are able. Sometimes we wish we could just grab them, put them on a cot, and take them to church because they don't want to listen. We get so frustrated. And if we can, we will direct them the best we can here. Of course, they can bring them against his will, but I don't think it was against his will. When people have physical concerns, because we are earthly creatures, it's real to them. And they want the help. I don't believe any of them were insincere and wanting help from Jesus. The question is, do they want more help from Jesus, the help for their soul? And as I mentioned before, Capernaum, too many of them didn't want that. They only wanted the miracle for their body. Their friends were determined to get their friend their sick one, help. And they did not give up, did they? They bring him. It's so crowded, they can't get through the front door, so it's spilling out into the street, probably into the courtyard, in the backyard. The whole house is just awashed in the locals. So what do they do? They go through the roof. Now you know something's up, because we can't do that today. 
reminding us again that this was over 2,000 years ago, and they built and structured their houses they're locally different than other places because they had the volcanic uh, rock to use. So, the buildings. First of all, to get to the roof was not that hard because often they had outside stairs. Just boom, you were there. Or a ladder. And they get to the top. The top's not very tall. They weren't very tall. They're not going to have very tall houses. And they might even have an upper chamber in those houses, and the roof was flat with the cross beams, and they put on top of it uh, brushwood, tree branches, and the like, with a thick blanket of mud or clay mixed in with chopped straw, beaten and rolled, and laid across, so that you can literally dig into the roof. They would have to repair it multiple times throughout the year anyway, and so it wouldn't be a disaster for them to do this. They could probably fix it really easy right there and just take the dirt from one side of the roof and put it on the other and cover the hole. The mud and the like and the straw. That's how it was. That's why they can do this. <clears throat> it was easy to dig through and bring their friend down by rope so that he would be right in front of Jesus and get his attention. The friends loved him so much to go through that work. It's not easy work. I didn't say it was easy, but it wasn't hard necessarily either the way it is to go through our roof. And they were determined to get him the help he needed. And sometimes, of course, we're called to do that, again, if we can. We can't, unfortunately, in this day and age, grab our friends and bring them to church. But we can, if possible, instruct them, urge them, and give them opportunities as best we can. And thus we see here the paralytic brought to Jesus so that he may be healed. But he gets more than what he bargained for, I suspect, and his friends as well. Jesus did more than just heal him. He forgave his sins, verses 5 through 12. When Jesus saw their faith, note it was their faith, their friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And of course the scribes who were there are shocked. How can this man speak this way? He sees their faith, verse 5. Although God demands moral perfection and is bringing judgment, as John the baptizer warned his audience, and we read in the opening chapters of Mark, and the ministry of Christ is about repentance because of judgment implied in that, there is a way out to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. We heard of his power and his ability and his willingness. And of course, the call of repentance back in chapter 1. And here, now the highlight is upon the call of faith and trust and believing in Jesus Christ that they can be delivered from the coming judgments, the axe being thrust to the root of the tree. And so Mark emphasizes here the need to believe in Jesus Christ and his work for his people, that Christ can heal someone to be sure, who does not believe. As we, again, Capernaum was full of unbelief. They had the miracles, but they did not trust in Jesus Christ to their own eternal shame. Then he began to rebuke the cities, we read elsewhere in the Gospels, in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have it would, not, it would have remained until this day. How could it have remained? Because it would have repented. That's a terrible 
terrible thing to be described, if you think about it. That Capernaum was worse than Sodom. Because if they would have seen the miracles, they would have been around today. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There is a degree of heinousness of sin. To whom much is given, much is required. And Capernaum had Jesus from the beginning. And they wanted nothing to do with him because a prophet is without honor, as the old proverb says, in his own country. And yet here, here we see the willing and able Savior bring forgiveness of the soul. Not just the healing of the body, but the healing of the soul. Through only what he could do, which was to grant forgiveness as God Almighty. And thus he did. Sin and sickness, in fact, are closely tied in the thinking of the audience and mentioned several times in the Bible. This implied connection of sin and sickness. I remember reading this story when I was a young man. And growing up here in Colorado, I'm like, why in the world did Jesus forgive him his sins? He came there for his bodily concerns. Oh, well, he did heal him eventually. Why? What's the point there? It makes sense to think of the connection, a connection between sin and sickness, because sickness is unnatural. It's a result of the fall of Adam and the curse upon this world. So when we see sicknesses, when we see ailments, when we see cancer, when we see broken limbs and paralytics, we should always be reminded that sin brought that into this world. It ultimately comes from transgressions of God's law. It's the punishment upon the human race. In the Old Testament we read, in Psalm 103, verses 2 through 3, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. So we see the psalmist obviously makes this connection as well, that sin is related to sickness, that what we have needs healing, healing of the body, because we need a healing of the soul. Second Chronicles 7.14, we read, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. So even the metaphor, whether that's taken as in healing of the sickness of the land, healing of the physical concerns of the land, or healing the sins of all those who reside in the land, the word healing is used in parallel with forgiveness of sins. Either way. Now, of course, not all sickness is directly due to sin. As we recall elsewhere in the Gospels, when the, <laughs> I think it was disciples, did this man sin or did his parents sin? Why, did he, why was he born this way? And Jesus said, he was born this way that God may be glorified. It had nothing to do with his particular sin or his parents' sin. That is not always up for us to decide unless it's obvious, like the sin of drunkenness or something like that, a sin of murder and of self-abuse, then you see the consequences of sin very clearly. But often it's more of an indirect effect upon us, reminding us and hounding us that this world has fallen. There's something wrong with this earth of ours. 
The unbeliever knows it. He senses it and he wants to fix it. So he turns to medical science. And God has indeed blessed them and blessed us with such wonderful science. That is, they can observe and interact with this world because God created it such that you can observe and interact with this world and learn from it and thus overcome ailments often in many various ways. But even, brothers and sisters, even then, healing is not permanent, is it? Another sickness comes along. We can't even get rid of the common code. It just comes back a different way, a different form. And death will always be there, haunting us, because of sin. So, the scribes, as we know the Pharisees later, the scribes being experts here, uh, who help maintain and um, the records of the Bible, the Old Testament, were there listening, and they were dumbfounded. <laughs> Why does this man, verse 7, speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So here we read about the hardened hearts of the Jewish leadership. First, they have a correct premise from God's word. God alone forgives sins in an absolute manner. Our forgiveness is tentative. Our forgiveness is more or less a promise not to bring it up again. But we don't have the gavel that God has from heaven to wipe it away. That's why whatever sin you have against one another, brothers and sisters, you do ask for forgiveness, but it's a lowercase f. You still need to go before God. He's the one that will wipe the slate clean through Jesus Christ's blood. We must always go to God and ask for forgiveness. And thus, they drew the right conclusion. But that's only one proper conclusion. They should have gone further, as we know. If he's forgiving sins, and only God forgives sins, he must be God. They don't want to accept that. A thousand times, no. Now notice here in verse 8, Jesus perceived in a spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, as only the God-man can. As God, he knows all things. And thus here, he chose this opportunity to expose their unbelieving hearts early on in his ministry. And thus, he continues here, and did what he did ahead of time, because he knew his audience in a way I don't. Obviously, when you preach and you instruct, not just as a pastor, but as a, as a layman, you have opportunity to bring the gospel. You want to bring it to them where they are in the sense of, hey, if they don't know the word justification, then you have to explain it to them. Or don't use it at all. Use another word. That's what I mean, not water down the truth, obviously. And Jesus knew where they were. He knew where the scribes were and the Pharisees. So he did it for their opportunity, as we saw here. But that you may know the Son of Man, verse 10, has power on earth to forgive sins. This is why I did it. To expand the truth of who I am and what I can do. I am willing, I am able, and I am able to forgive sins. That no one else can. And so we have Jesus' rhetoric in verses 9 through 12. What do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? From the Jewish scribe's perspective, it would be easy for Jesus to claim sins are forgiven, since it could not be proven true or false from a human perspective. He could just make the utterance, 
And whether it actually happens in heaven above or not is another matter altogether. It would actually be harder to heal somebody, to pull off back then, although today you can do deep fake or something on YouTube. It would be harder to heal somebody, take up your bed and walk. But of course, from Christ's perspective, they're both easy to do, and Christ does what? He does both of them! I did it, he says in verse 10, that you may know the Son of Man has power. A power John the Baptizer didn't have. A power none of the other prophets of old had. I'm a special prophet because I'm also the priest, the great high priest. I'm the Son of God. And that he, he heals as well the body and the soul to show the unbelief of their hearts in facing the truth. He started out forgiving the man first and then healing him later. He did it for his particular audience, the scribes, but also the others around him, of course, to see that Jesus came with something unique and different. He wasn't just concerned about the body, although he did that because he loved his people, but he was especially concerned for the soul, the healing of the soul, that Jesus, the promised Messiah, who forgives sins as only God can, and they did not draw the right conclusions of the ought to, and thus the scribes exposed their hardened hearts. They know that only God can forgive sins, and healing is associated with forgiveness, and all this evidence, yet they refuse to believe the Messiah that stands before them as healing bodies and souls. He didn't just say it. Sure, scribes, I can just say it whenever I want. I'm going to heal the guy right now. They're both true. I can do both, and I am doing both, and I will do both, because that is my ministry and my job, and I love my people. Jesus Christ, in his rhetoric here, used it to expose the hardness, at the same time to instruct the people around him, their call, not only to repent of their sins, as John the Baptizer highlights, but also to look for forgiveness from the Messiah. Which is utterly unique and different from all the other prophets they ever heard about or read or encountered in their short life. And so Mark highlights this for his audience and for us to see the call and the need of repentance. Yes, of faith, as we saw before, he saw their faith, but more especially to strengthen that weak faith that this Savior of ours This Messiah, the chosen anointed one, he forgives sins, which is good news to those who feel the burden of their sins upon them. To those who wonder, can I come to Jesus? As we read in the prior verses. If you are willing, you can heal me. Are you willing is the implied question. Will you? He is. And not just the healing of the body, but more than that. Now it's changed in theme and substance here in Mark 2, the healing of the soul, the deliverance from sin and death, the forgiveness of sins, a guilty conscience that's unresolved is a heavy burden indeed. If you do not know you are forgiven in Christ Jesus, your Lord, you will struggle in a way that others will not. But you don't have to. 
Jesus Christ forgives sins. He forgave his sin. He can forgive our sins. You who are burdened with sin and guilt and worry, acknowledge your sins and bring them to Jesus and know that your your sins are like the paralytic. It's real. It hampers your soul. But trust that Jesus is able and willing. And he can and will forgive you as surely as he forgave the paralytic and healed him body and soul. Let us pray. Our God and Savior above, our Lord, you who are a generous God and healed your people and brought a a wonderful message to them that they don't have to bear their burdens anymore. They don't have to try to save themselves. They don't have to be good enough to avoid sickness. Rather, God, always cling and trust to you, repent of their sins, and embrace your forgiveness. We pray, God, that we would continue to live such a life and those, Lord, in our life around us, those who want nothing to do with Jesus, would repent and see that Jesus does indeed forgive sinners. In your name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing. 470-470.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Thank you.